0: At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus, and we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. North Point, how we doing? Wow, what's going on, back row? Are we okay? We do something different to the coffee this morning? I'm thinking... Well, yeah, this has nothing to do with anything, but my daughter for uh, uh, Christmas bought me this coffee. It's called Death Wish Coffee. Anyone read this? <laughs> It's like supposed to have the uh, more caffeine than humanly able to drink or something like that. So I I don't know. Maybe we're serving Death Wish back there. That's good. stuff. Hey, uh, we're in a series uh, called uh, NT90, and hopefully you are reading through the Bible, uh, New Testament, in 90 days with us. It's been good stuff. Here's uh, kind of what I'm thinking about this morning just to help us get on the same page, at least where I think we're going to go. Uh, have you ever had the opportunity to be an apprentice to someone like 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 the 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 next level uh up from being just a student, but like where it's really geared for a specific skill or trade or a specific task. Not, I'm not talking like just a general student in school. That's fine. But I mean like an actual um, apprentice style thing, not training like you have to watch the PowerPoint videos to check off the box for my OSHA. But like some of you know what I'm talking about. But like literally you paired yourself with another person or maybe even a group of people to learn a skill. Maybe it was like an electrician or a plumber, maybe that was karate or jujitsu, or maybe you found a musical vocal coach, or maybe it was culinary arts like a chef, or maybe it was dance. Not something you learned on YouTube but like you were an apprentice. If you've ever had that opportunity, there's something very unique about that. I've had that maybe twice in my life. I say maybe twice because one is like happening right now, but the first one was back in high school. Um, I was going to be a youth pastor. I knew that. And for some reason in my head, I knew that every youth pastor had to play the guitar. So I thought I'd learn the guitar. It's actually true. It's funny. Um, And so uh, I found some guy at my church. He was like this long haired 1970s rocker. And so I said, Hey, will you teach me guitar? And that's the whole thing. And he's like, sure. And so, uh, so i would i would take these lessons from him but he wasn't a teacher and i wasn't a student it's super funny so we just like he just tried to teach me guitar and he was so frustrated with me because if you play guitar, you know that when you strum, there's like, it's like a fluid thing, right? Like down here, not up here. We don't care what's going on up here. But like down here, it's like fluid. And I couldn't get it fluid. I was like a robot. And as, like I don't know how many lessons we're in, he finally he grabs my arm one day and just starts flinging it, and like picks are flying everywhere, and I'm crying. No, I wasn't crying. I was kidding. Maybe a little. But just, it's really. Def- I don't know why that stuck with me, but that's just stuck with me as this picture of, I guess, teacher and apprentice, right? Uh, the other one is ha- actually happening right now. Um, I have this uh, – some of you are going to laugh. Most of you are going to laugh. You're going to laugh. Uh, I have this um, uh, sabbatical coming up over the summer, and as part of the learning focus on that, it's all about spiritual growth and how we form spiritually. So I've been trying to find a bladesmith to pair myself with. This is the guy who makes swords. Remember, I'm this guy right here. Remember that? Okay, anyway, so I'm hoping it doesn't turn into that because, like, I don't know, hammers and fire and stuff flinging around a shop can't be nearly as. This idea of being apprenticed to someone, a learner, the church calls discipleship. That's the word that we use for that. And since you guys this last week spent uh, reading the last half of Mark and the first part of Luke, you spent a considerable amount of time with these 12 guys that we call the disciples, these, these guys that spent their life with Jesus, like probably Jesus' closest friends on the planet, right? These, these 12 guys, they were helpful and not. <laughs> they were motivated and not. They were uh, courageous and not. And they were spiritual and not. And they were encouraging to Jesus and not. And they were basically a giant mess of mixed everything. If we read the Gospels, we I think we see ourselves in those 12 guys. At least you're picking one of them. You're like, yep, that's me. right? Because they were just this mix of stuff. So that's where I want to uh, capitalize this week and just talk about this idea of what did that mean? What did that look like to be one of the 12 that were closest to Jesus. Before we jump into that, um, I just want to spend five minutes talking about Luke. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning, so it's a great place to open up to. Luke chapter 1, we'll start there. Uh, we'll read that a few minutes. Uh, it's in the North Point app. If you have the app, the verses will be there. They'll be on the screen behind me as well, but hopefully you have somehow a copy of Bible in your hands, whether it's uh, digital, electronic, or in print, because I want you to see that. But let me just give you a couple of facts about the Gospel of Luke, this thing we call the Book of Luke. It was written somewhere between 63 and 70 AD. D, that's really important because it's only 20 to 40 years after Jesus left the planet. That means that it's really close to the time that Jesus existed physically on the planet as well as folks that this is written about were still alive by then. Sometimes people who are, you know, anti-Bible or anti-Christian or whatever, they're like, oh, the Bible was written hundreds of years later after this guy. How could they possibly remember? And there's like really good answers for that first because it's like, you know, it was an oral culture. They remembered a lot more stuff than we do because we're not an oral culture. We don't remember stuff people say. We Remember stuff people write down. But they were very much an oral culture. They would remember. But this is also written down within a lifetime. Of the folks that were part of that. So it's really close. That's a really important, healthy thing. The other thing to say is that Luke is really only half of a book. It's part one of a two-part thing that Luke wrote. Part one is what we call Luke, and part two is the book of Acts. When you hear it referred to, sometimes if you like study and like these smart, like commentary type guys, they'll refer to it as Luke-Acts, because it really is one whole story, but we just broken it into two parts. Part one is Luke Luke writes about the story of Jesus. It's it's, it's this biography of Jesus' life, we call it. A gospel part two is Acts, which is really the story of the church. So how Jesus' mission continued on after Jesus left the planet it through the church. This is kind of interesting there. Uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse one, says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke was not one of the twelve disciples. Luke was not even necessarily part of that group. Maybe he floated around, but he certainly was not one of that crew. So he writes his gospel from kind of a different perspective. Matter of fact, there's a good chance that Luke was a Gentile. Gentile is the word that the Bible the Jews use for not Jewish. It was like you were a Jew or you were everybody else called the Gentiles. It's a very good chance that Luke was a Gentile. Now, we build that case from a bunch of little circumstantial evidence kinds of things. Luke never comes out and is like, hey, I'm a Gentile. But if that's true... That's just really fascinating because it would make him the only non-Jewish author of the Bible. He's the only non-Jew that wrote part of the Bible. It's also really fascinating because it helps to explain why Luke was so captured and was so focused on Jesus' ministry to non-Jews. Like, Jesus did stuff with Jews in Israel, but he also did some stuff with these Gentiles. And so it's just just very interesting if that's the case. Uh, We do know, because it's called out later in Scripture, that Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, which explains his attention to detail, especially in the small things. It also helps us understand in Luke 1 there, those first few verses, where it talks about he investigated everything helps us understand that because that's what doctors do that's what good doctors do they investigate what's going on you don't just show up to the doctor and they're like here take this and they're just guessing they want to figure out why you are feeling the way you're feeling what's hurting what's broken leg is bleeding whatever that is they want to investigate that and then bring some kind of course action to it and so that's what luke does he investigates this whole story of jesus and then writes this account He builds this account from his interviews with eyewitnesses. So Luke probably interviewed Mary and Peter. He's like, hey, so I heard this story from like Mark. What do you think? How did it help me round this out? So he he takes this investigation approach, kind of like a journalist, and then writes it down. And he writes for a very specific purpose. Certainly it's for us as well. But in his mind, at least as he's thinking, he is writing specifically to help a guy named Theophilus. You see it right there. To, to feel certainty that the stuff he had heard about Jesus was absolutely true. Like, don't mistake Luke's goal. He wants to convince Theophilus, and you, and me, that this stuff is reliable. Theophilus is probably a Gentile convert to Jesus. He was probably trying to figure out how does this whole, like, I understand Judaism and all the rules and stuff that goes with being a Jew, but then there's Jesus and I'm not a Jew, but I'm into Jesus. How does this all work together? Is there a place for me? As a Gentile in this whole Jesus thing. And again, kind of begins to explain a little bit. If Luke was a Gentile, that makes some sense with that focus because he wants Theophilus to understand there's absolutely a part for you. There's absolutely a place for you. Jesus is not just Jesus for those people. He's Jesus for us people. Right? Luke really wants to communicate that Jesus was the perfect man. Kind of as he dials in and focuses, you'll see this picture over and over again, that he wants you to understand Jesus was perfect man. Not only was 100% God, but he was 100% a human. And that matters because that makes Jesus this, this worthy sacrifice. So when Jesus dies at the end of the gospel and rises from the dead, that is for us. And it's possible to be for us because he was human. He can take our place. Because he was God, it happens for everybody. It's interesting, there's a guy named Bruce Wilkerson. He's got this whole uh, Bible program thing called Walk Through the Bible. If you're like 112 years old, you probably remember it. I'm almost there. But it's it's kind of from back in the day. But in it, he has this coloring book. We're going to use this coloring book as part, yes, I said coloring book, as part of um, our Bible overview that's starting up in February, if you're going to be part of that group. And he's got one of these for every single book of the Bible to help us remember what the book's focus is. And so here, this is the book, book of Luke. You can see why, right? Because he's looking. I didn't write it. I just repeat it. Now, they're bad puns. Every single one of them is a real bad pun, but I guarantee you're never going to forget this picture. <laughs> you will remember this. Right? So he's, he's a doctor. You saw that right away. Dr. Luke is looking at Jesus, a man who is what? Ten perfect Perfect man? You're okay. Enough of that. Anyway, it's it's this idea of Luke wants us to understand that Jesus was a perfect man. So, for example, in Luke chapter 3, when Luke lays out the genealogy of Jesus, he traces it from Joseph's line, which is interesting because Joseph was Jesus' stepdad. But he traces it from Joseph's line, the human line, all the way through back to Adam. So just this, this picture. Okay, Luke chapter 5 is where I want to camp today. So, uh, you know, there's some intro stuff. That, that's free. Um, but but here we go. Um, Luke chapter 5. Last week, Rick opened the idea of these disciples. And and today, I really want to dive into, like, what did it mean to be one of clo- uh, Jesus' closest friends? These 12 guys Jesus spent three years with running around the mountainside camping and eating and healing and preaching and laughing and shaking his head and just the whole menagerie that these guys brought with them. What did that what did that mean? What does that mean for us today? Does that even matter? So Luke chapter 5 starting in verse 1. This is how Jesus calls these guys to be his his disciples says, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two brothers left there by, uh, two boats rather left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who will uh, be reminded that his name is also Peter. Later Jesus changes it. And asked him to put out a little bit from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets. For a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And yes, I think it sounded sarcastic like that. I could be wrong, but I think that's how it went says, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell on Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. You get the story. They had fished. Jesus preached. He said, hey, let's go. You should go catch some more fish. And they're like, whatever, because you say so. Kind of like, like, hey, 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 I know fishing dog, but you know preaching, just stick to your thing. But hey, you say woo. And then the, and like all these fish show up and, and, and Peter's blown away and all the guys are blown away. Matthew's account actually tells us that Peter's brother Andrew is with him as well. So there's four of them. It's Peter and Andrew and it's James and John. And They're blown away. They're just like, this is insane what just happened. And, and um, it's a little bit uh, buried in there because Jesus only in this Luke's account says, uh, don't be afraid for now and you'll fish for people. But in Matthew's account, it says that Jesus said, follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. And so there is this phrase follow me, and these four guys uh, do that. Um, it, it's interesting because these four guys, this was their profession, fishing. Uh, they were uh, successful enough in the small business, maybe medium sized business that they owned, that they owned boats. And they had enough boats and need customers for fish that there were four of them. And probably the best understanding of the language is that the four were partners. So this place is large enough that it requires four partners. This is not just some, like, m- mom-and-pop fishing business. This is, like, a legit gig going on. And so these four guys, they, it's what they do. They they fish for fish and jesus comes along and this little miracle happens and they're like okay and he uses jesus uses what these guys knew what they were good at what they were skilled at what they had been doing for some years to invite them into something different he says you used to fish for fish but come on, hang out with me, and I'm going to have you fish for people. That's, that's it's funny in my head, because Jesus could have said, Hey, you used to fish for fish, now you're going to preach the gospel. You used to spend the days out on open water, hunting elusive perch, pretty much not having to deal with people at all, and now you're going to spend your days cooped up inside a church building, talking to lots of people about how I'm the Messiah. And these guys would have freaked out. Can't do that. I'm not doing that. That's nah. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, Hey, you know how you guys like to fish? We're going to do that. Same thing. Just be people. That's not the same thing. But it's interesting because Jesus uses what they're already skilled at and good at. He so says, I'm going to use what you what you got, and we're going to just do a different thing. We're going to change the world. It's going to be amazing. Right. So these guys, they do that. They drop everything. Uh, they follow him. And then if we go on to chapter uh, 5. Uh, verse 27 there's another calling of a different disciple it says uh, after this he calls these four and then some stuff happens it says after this Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi his Greek name is Matthew so that's either one Levi Matthew sitting at a tax booth follow me Jesus says to him and Levi got up left everything and followed him and then John's account, if, if if we were to jump ahead another gospel, John, there's another calling in chapter 1, verse 43. Some things happen. It says, Jesus, the next day, uh, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And this is probably the most interesting thing, because Philip runs right out and tells his, his uh, relation, uh, Nathaniel, a friend, brother, whatever. Nathaniel, he says, hey, you got to come check out this guy. I think he's the Messiah. And Nathaniel's like my favorite guy, because he's like, Nazareth, because he says, it's Jesus from Nazareth. He's like, Nazareth? Anything good come out of Nazareth? That's great. He's like, Ovid, I don't want to pick on anywhere. I don't know what to pick on. I'm so scared right now. DeWitt? DeWitt! Anything good? Out? So, so it's just like, it's interesting. So these four guys, right? You got, you got Peter and, and uh, Andrew uh, take off, and then James and John, and then Matthew and Philip, these six guys um, follow Jesus. And interesting because um, as my wife and I have been talking through this this last week, she keeps telling me how captured she is by the fact that these guys would just drop everything to follow, to follow Jesus. And so this phrase, follow me, like, there has to be, it seems like maybe there's something to the phrase, and it turns out there is. There absolutely is something to the phrase. This, this life-changing, altering, prompting, this immediate response on the part of these guys, it was a big deal. Turns out this phrase, follow me, was a well-known and readily understood phrase in Jewish culture. Sometimes without understanding it, we read this and we're like, these guys are irresponsible. <laughs> like they just dumped their stuff and went and chased some dude who was like a like a roadie or something. Like that's weird. But this phrase meant something that they would have understood. In the Greek the phrase follow me was akalutheo and it literally means to come along as a constant companion. Or to be a disciple, and it was the phrase that many young Jewish boys longed to hear. If you were a Jewish boy or girl, you would go to school early on. It was called Beth Sefer. It's like elementary school, ages five through twelve. And then the most academically promising boys would go on to the next level of school called Beth Midrash, which is we might call junior high, high school, ages twelve to fifteen. And then from that, if 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 those boys were incredibly academically promising. They would go on to the next. Stuff. If they weren't academically promising, they'd just go on to just be part of the family business, you know, so fishing and, and, and carpentry and whatever it is that they were doing. And that was great. But the most like brainiac, academic, cream of the crop, smarty pants types would be questioned by a rabbi extensively. And if they were deemed worthy, they would be invited by that rabbi to to follow me. And that would be the call for them to be a student of the rabbi, to become a disciple of that rabbi, and they would follow that rabbi around, hoping maybe one day they too would be a great rabbi. So if you didn't wash out of Jewish school, then you would have this phrase offered to you, follow me, and you would become a follower of a rabbi. In Hebrew, that phrase is talmudim. You would become a talmudim, a disciple. Literally can mean one who sits at the feet of of a rabbi these talmudim would follow their rabbi everywhere this calling was so all-inclusive they would follow him everywhere they would follow the rabbi if the rabbi went into the restroom they would follow the rabbi into the restroom like these little ducklings if you have children you know what i'm talking about they would follow him into the restroom to see if maybe the rabbi had like a different way of doing that they would want to emulate that rabbi's way of life exactly replication and so that was this concept of the 12 Medim, Talmudim. Now it's interesting because the 12, these guys were already in their chosen careers. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these guys were fishermen. To the extent they had fished for long enough, they had built this, I think, a pretty good-sized, healthy fishing business from their labors. And so Jesus comes along and says to them, follow me. Uh, Matthew, Levi, he had actually kind of gone like maybe an opposite direction. He, he was this, this Jewish kid who washed out of rabbi school and then became uh, one of the most hated careers for Jews, like tax collectors. They, they hated those guys. He had become that, like almost going the opposite direction. Now Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. Like the phrase that Jewish boys longed to hear. Now I don't, I don't know uh, this phrase when Jesus says, "Follow me," these guys were game to do it. Was it, was it they were nursing wounds from childhood that they felt like they never ever measured up, or they maybe they really wanted that, and maybe they didn't. Maybe they just always wanted to be fishermen and didn't like being in school. We don't know. We're making up stuff, but I just wonder what causes a man to leave everything and and go. And I just I just wonder, was there something, maybe from, from early on in uh, childhood, they had felt that sense of not measuring up to mom and dad. You know, dad or mom was like, you know, you just played less video games and spent more time hitting the books instead of out on the shore fishing. You could have been a, a rabbi. Like, you could have been a doctor. You could have been a lawyer. You could have been, I don't know. But these guys, whatever's in them, when Jesus says to them, Follow me. It changes their life. Being a Talmudim required total commitment to the rabbi. They weren't just like students or observers but they were called to be just like Jesus. It's, it's interesting, in Matthew chapter 11, uh, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The yoke was the rabbi's full body of teaching and expectations and religious rules and regulations and way of doing life and, and everything. And, and the common thinking was that, that, that the yoke from most rabbis was was heavy and burdensome. Because, like, there was a rule for everything, and you had to emulate that person's life exactly, and it was complicated. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, it was a very different kind of rabbi. And so for these guys that had been fishermen, that understood something, that Jesus says, hey, we're going to take what you understand. We're going to do something a little different here, but it's going to be cool. You're going to love it. They're like, bring this. I'm in. Jesus says, my yoke. Is not, I'm not all about burdening with you, heaping on you rules and regulations, but I'm offering life-changing relationship, and it brings rest. And so these guys said, I'm in. So you got the twelve. You got twelve disciples, but on top of that, I don't know if you know, there's other groups that followed Jesus around. I used to think it was just the twelve. It was like Jesus and the twelve, Jesus and the twelve, Jesus and the twelve. But there's actually a handful of different groups that followed Jesus around. One we might call like the large crowd. I don't, there's no real name for it. It's just the large crowd. It's often as large as thousands. But it's probably most often a few hundreds. Um, it's not the same people all the time, probably. It changes from group to group, but there are probably some of the same people involved in those groups. For example, when Jesus feeds 5,000, you remember that? There's some loaves and fishes, and the disciples are like, ah, and he's like, ah, it's in sweat. And everybody got food and a bunch of baskets left over. I kind of remember, that's my version. Um, the, the feeding 5,000, those were uh, people that kind of followed Jesus around. There's another feeding miracle where he feeds 4,000, or at least 4,000, because they just kept of the dudes, um, and, and Matthew 15 and Mark 8, he feeds 4,000, and so these were the thousands or the many hundreds that followed Jesus around. Um, there was this group that, when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time, sort of that last week before he dies on the cross, there's all these people throwing their garments on the road and like palm branches. We call it Palm Sunday. If you remember that, like like that was probably part of that group that just followed Jesus everywhere. So, you got the, the large crowd. Then, you've got, um, probably just what we call the crowd. I call them the entourage, but you just call it whatever you want. Uh, a smaller crowd. Um, they, they, in the Bible, are called disciples. So it's not just the 12 that are called disciples, but there is this little bit larger group that follows Jesus around, also called the disciples. There's about 70 to 100-ish. The numbers kind of fluctuate, um, probably because many of them accompanied Jesus everywhere, but they were probably also continuing on with their regular life stuff. So they would be with Jesus, they'd go home and take care of a few things and do this thing and go home, but they were really partnered with Jesus. This included... A number of women. There were women uh, disciples. All Twelve were all men, but there was a group of ladies that followed Jesus around and helped out with all those things, too. Um, there's some examples. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 to go out and uh, share gospel and do some things. And he sends them out two by two, if you remember that at all. So that's part of these this crowd or entourage of disciples. In Acts 1, verse 15, it says Peter stands up and addresses the believers. This is that larger group. And he numbers them. He says about 120 Right. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says Jesus appeared after dying. He appears to a bunch of people to say, hey, I'm back. Uh, appears to, it says he appears to over 500 brothers and sisters. So this idea of probably more disciples than just the 12. Again, they probably uh, did some stuff with their own life, but they were following Jesus too. An interesting component is it seems that Jesus offers them the follow me offer as well at times. But a lot of them just don't take it. There seems to be that. In Luke 9, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple. So there seems to be this offer there. In, in the end of Luke nine fifty nine, he says to one guy, follow me. And that guy says, okay, I will, but first let me go bury my dad. And probably the idea there is his dad hasn't died yet. But he's saying like, hey, after my dad dies, because I really want to be, I really want to spend time with my dad. Then I'll come follow you. It's probably the best what he's thinking there. And Jesus is like, yeah, just, that's not what I'm talking about. There's another time where Jesus says the same office, follow me, in Luke 9:61, And that person says, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. It probably doesn't mean he just wants to go home and be like, Mom, see you later. You know, give her a hug one last. It's more like, hey, when my family obligations are over, then I'll come follow you. And Jesus is like, yeah, it doesn't, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what it means to be a Talmudim. There's this story where um, uh, a guy who's got a bunch of money and some element of power, he comes up to Jesus. He says, what must I do to have eternal life? And they have this dialogue, and Jesus says, well, sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. We often cap on the first part, sell everything, give it to the poor. But Jesus' punchline was, follow me. Those things are keeping you from following me. So I want you to follow me. And it says that that guy walked away sad because he had much stuff in the way of following Jesus. And so there seems to be in this group this offer that others don't take. Then we have the 12. as We kind of narrow this down from large crowds to crowds to the 12. We just talked about them. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, another James, Simon, the Zealot, uh, Judas, and then Judas that they call the traitor. These guys in Luke 6, these 12, Jesus then renames them apostles. And there are different meanings, disciple and apostle. Disciple is a student or a learner. An apostle is a goer or a messenger. And so it's like these guys level up a notch, the 12. Like you were students, and and you're still going to be that, but you're also going to be goers. And there's some things that I want you to do. So he calls them the apostles, and, and that's kind of that. Within those 12 apostles, disciples, there are three that seem like they are closest to jesus it's peter james and john these three seem to go places that the other nine don't go for example there's this time where jesus takes these three up on the top of a mountain they're going to pray together and as they're doing that like jesus's clothes turn white his face shines and a couple dead prophets show up and they all freak out and they're like let's build a house and it's, it's a cool story but but only those three got that experience the rest of the nine are down at the bottom somewhere. Right? There's this time where they go into this town, and this uh, synagogue leader named Jairus, his daughter, is sick and dying. And he comes to Jesus and says, hey, come come heal my daughter. And Jesus says, okay. And so they start going, and then the, the messengers meet him on the way, like right out front of the door. And they're like, hey, don't, don't, she's dead. There's nothing to do. This is a little 12-year-old girl. Right? And he's like, "Ah." Oh. And so Jesus is all back up and brings the three, Peter, James, and John, in the house with him. And the parents, and he raises this girl back to life. But it's just the three that get to experience that. And then the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is on his last night, he's, he's praying before a uh, whole crucifixion um, scenario happens. He brings the twelve. He leaves nine of them sort of out at the front gate. He walks in with these three: Peter, James, and John. Two a little further in. He's like, "Hey, let's pray together. You guys pray here. I'm going to go over here." They all fall asleep. If you remember that story, that's funny. But um, but it's those three that seem to have this closer connection, not not just physically. But there seems to be something in maybe intellectually and spiritually as well. And I don't want to go too far with this, but it's interesting if, if the crowds, the crowd, disciples, the twelve, the three, was it just those three that took that offer of deeper relationship? It could be that those three just were relationally closest to Jesus. They took something the others didn't. I, I, Jesus had something to give them that they didn't. I don't know. Um, I, I personally, I think I'm the only person on the planet that thinks this, but I know I'm right. Um, I think it could be that they were the knuckleheads. Because if you're a teacher, it's 20 years of work with junior hires. If you're a teacher, where do you put the bad kid? You, <laughs> right? You're making that seating chart and you're like, Johnny, uh, I've been talking about you in the teacher's lounge desk right in front of the teacher, right? It's possible that those three were the knuckle. I mean, you got Peter with all the water walking and swords swinging. You got James and John who get the nickname Sons of Thunder because they were in a town and the town ticked them off. And so they're like, Jesus, can we call down lightning and kill everyone? Ha! Calm down, son. I don't, I don't know. I think I, I don't know. Were they knuckleheads? Were they just relationally closer to Jesus? Did they go a different level that none of the other ones did? I, I don't know. But I do know that they experienced a little more than the rest. The crowds, the twelve, the three, there's all these different disciples that followed Jesus. And often we think, man, that would have been cool to be a disciple. Like, I would be so much more spiritual if I was just, like, if, if Jesus had discipled me. Like, because I had... That knucklehead who helped me one time and I read a book and I'm just a mess. Like if Jesus, if I was one of the 12 with Jesus, man, that would have just been like the coolest thing. And here's what I want to say. That's the coolest part is you can. What Jesus did for the 12, he wants to do for you. What Jesus did for the 12, he wants to do for me. This um, book we've been reading as life group leaders here, if you're part of a life group, your leaders are reading this. It's called Discipled by Jesus by Robert uh, Galenus, and it is this idea of what Jesus did for the 12, he wants to do for us as well. That's his premise. Here's a couple of quotes just to sort of shape this a little. He says this, Discipleship is a direct one-on-one relationship in which we are led by, taught by, and loved by Jesus himself. He also says, God brings people into our lives to point us to Christ, but they're never to take the place of Christ. It's vital to understand we start getting into trouble when we emulate people and not Jesus. It's vital to recognize that he is the one who shepherds your spiritual growth. Not the church, not a Bible study, not an online pastor, a mentor, or even someone you might call your discipler. It's Jesus that shepherds our spiritual growth. My job as a pastor is not to disciple all people, but is to prepare them to be discipled directly by Jesus and equip them for that. See, there's a difference in this. Sometimes we get a little lost as, as um, Christian community. and We think I've got to find someone to disciple me. And I, I, I'm a huge, I get that people play a role in our spiritual growth and development. Absolutely believe that. Spiritual growth goes further, faster in a group. Other people are God's plan A. All the circles are better than rows. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus who disciples me, not another person. So the last thing that you need is more Chris's running around. We can barely handle the one Chris. Right? We don't need more Rick Rubles running around. And if you know Jake Howard, our family life guy, we do not want to replicate. No, I'm just kidding. I love Jake. I always tell him I'm going to pick on him. We need more Jesuses running around. People that have discipled themselves to following Jesus. So what does that look like? What does that actually look like to follow Jesus now? Because you're thinking, wait a minute, like the 12 had him physically standing there. That would have been a little simpler. M- maybe. But let me just make a couple suggestions. Uh, Galenus makes his suggestions in his book, and I think he's right on. A couple suggestions, because this could be a whole sermon series in itself, but just how do we think about being discipled to Jesus now? What Jesus did for the 12, he wants to do for me. What could that look like? Here's the first suggestion, is to start thinking in present tense language. It's not what Jesus did. He did some stuff, but it's what Jesus is doing it's not that Jesus was, it's that Jesus is. And I think that's a really important shift. We're not trying to do what he did, but we're trying to do what he's doing and saying, now, I don't want to be part of what he did then, I want to be part of what he's doing now. Now, Jesus is not dead. But sometimes we talk about Jesus as if he is still dead. Well, if I could have just spent time with Jesus... I can. If I could have just asked Jesus, I can. See, Jesus is alive. And that's a huge shift in our thinking. It's not like it's a relay race where Jesus did his part in the past and now I have to do my part to figure it out. We sometimes subconsciously think that. And I think that's when we get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. And just a simple language shift Uh, Referring to Jesus in a present tense, I think, is a helpful thing. Here's the second thing that Galena suggested I think it makes a lot of sense. He says, To be discipled by Jesus, we must live Holy Spirit fueled lives, which require the path of rest, surrender, and wait. He goes on to talk about these ideas of resting. Like, we've got to find time, we've got to carve out time to be with Jesus. That's what NT 90 is all about. It's not about reading through the New Testament and be like, oh, I read through the New Testament or checking off a box or like, you know, competing a new version with your friends or whatever you're doing. But it is about carving out time to be with Jesus. I love the Gospels because it is all about being with Jesus. It's not was about being with Jesus. Are you with me? is about being with jesus he says rest, uh, rest carving out that time to just rest in jesus he says surrender this idea of giving control of our minds to the holy spirit not the millions of other things that that uh, attack us for our attention and distract us around us when jesus told the guys follow me that phrase meant something to them and they knew what it meant they understood they asked they understood the voice they knew who was asking it's interesting because in the Bible it talks a lot about shepherds and sheep, and it says, Sheep know the shepherd's voice. And the way that they know, the reason they know the shepherd's voice is because they spent time with the shepherd. And even though sheep get incredibly distracted because they are somewhat dumb animals, uh, or really dumb animals, uh, they get distracted. They, when the shepherd calls, they, they perk and go. Like that's how it works. So for us to know the shepherd's voice comes because we spend time with him, surrendering our million-mile-an-hour mind to a three-mile-an-hour God. We do that. And the last thing he says is wait. He says wait for the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus. Um, and, and that waiting, man, we st- maybe it's just me that stinks as that as an American, but we stink at waiting. He says, "Wait," and that's hard. Uh, in 2013, there was this. I get it, it; it's cool, I guess. It's called the Seven Minute Bible. If you ever heard of that or whatever, and I, I get what they're trying to do. Like, hey, people are busy, so can we help them just because reading the Bible? It's important, so we read it. You can read the Bible in seven minutes a day. Like, revolutionize your relationship with Jesus in seven minutes a day. And I think, wow, could you imagine if that was a marriage relationship? Seven minutes a day, baby. It's all you get. So here he is, because I think this would be the guy while she's talking. Boom, seven minutes, I'm out. <laughs> Off to my other stuff. Like that would be like some of you are like, hey, I'm gonna try that. Good luck. <laughs> imagine imagine seven minutes a day to build a relationship with your kid. Like if you have a teenager, you've learned by now that you can you can try and concoct the best teaching moments with your kid. <laughs> So, when they're little, you're like, we're going to have a great conversation right now. And they're like, and you're like, I I suck as a parent. But you start realizing it's just that time spent when those great conversations naturally come up. Could you imagine if you tried to manage that in seven minutes a day? Okay, son, seven minutes, it better be good. Imagine how messed up your kids would be and sometimes we try, we don't wait for the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus, just like we we cram through our read or whatever we do and we're off to the next thing. It's like one more thing. But if we're going to really be discipled by Jesus, that Jesus wants to do for the twelve, what he did for the twelve he wants to do for us, that's really going to happen. It's got to come by just really spending time with him, learning his voice, waiting for the Holy Spirit to just help us understand what it is Jesus is asking us to do today. So, let me finish by just making an offer to you to Follow him today. Very accurately. Not follow me as I follow, but follow him. Maybe that's the very first time you've ever done that. Maybe you've never followed Jesus before. Maybe you've never been asked before. I think Jesus is asking you to follow him. That's the very first time we want to know about it. We'd love you to share that with us. You don't have to, but we'd love that. There's a million ways you can share. There's like 10 ways you can share that with us. Like there's a, in the app, there's a response card. You could put on a piece of paper and stick it in a box on the way out. You can send any of us an email. You can email info at North Point and let us know. We'll figure it out. Like we'd love to just pray and celebrate that. Maybe that offer to follow Jesus. Maybe you've done that before. This is not the first time. Maybe it's the hundredth time or the tenth time or the thousandth time. Maybe somewhere along the way, along your journey, you kind of got lost, bogged down, started following the wrong rabbi. I say, come back today. Because what Jesus did for the twelve, he wants to do for you. To discipling from Jesus. Not from another person or from a, anything else, but just from him. And we want to hear about that too. If that's you today, we want to hear those same methods. Anyway, you can let us know. We'd love that. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're here and you're like, well, I don't, I'm not ready to follow Jesus. I don't, I'm still trying to figure this whole thing out. I have questions. I think that's great. Questions are the place to start. And I would say don't get bogged down. Don't just decide to live the next 20 years in a question. Like find answers because they're there. You can ask Jesus, <laughs> absolutely sure that he will figure out how to get you an answer. We'd love to help you with that journey, too. If you're in there and you're stuck at a place, and you're trying to figure out, is this Jesus, a rabbi worth following? I'd say, man, we'd love to talk to you about that, and share our stories with you. First time, hundredth time, you're not quite there yet. I just want us to know that Jesus has given us this incredible offer to follow him. Let me pray. It will be done for today. Jesus, thank you. Thanks for the offer. Thanks for the offer to follow you. Help me, help us to be men and women who chase that, who take you up on that. How silly it would be to be offered a million dollars and not take it. And This is so much better. Jesus, help us. Help us to think in these terms. Jesus, help us to, to see the disciples, the twelve, the three, the crowd, and, and, and see ourselves in that picture a little bit, God, to, 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 to hunger and want to be in a discipleship relationship with you where you lead and we follow and you're doing amazing things and we just get to be part of it. Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you for the fact that you would uh, uh, let people like me, like, like us, even come into relationship with you. The full, messed up, broken, hypocritical, just gross man that I am, Jesus, that you would want to have relationship and that you would offer those words to follow you. Jesus, help us to do it, to do it in ways that are beneficial to us and the people around us. I love you, Lord. Amen. North Point, thanks for being here. Thanks for being with me for the last few minutes. If I don't see you before next week, have a good one.